0: Christians. Real conversations. Philosophy. Theology. Real life. Where the rubber meets the road. This is the Commuter Christian Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Commuter Christian Podcast. As you can see, it's just me today due to scheduling and technology, but that actually works out really well. Uh, We've just gone over critical race theory, um, the philosophical stew that we're all a part of, And um, last week, we introduced the idea of Cold War Theology. So, that is a lot to take in. It's a lot to process, quite honestly. So, I thought that this week, since I'm solo, we would just reflect and work out what we've learned so far. So... let's talk about critical race theory again for a little bit here. Uh, You know, as a white, you know, evangelical Christian, uh, my biggest exposure to CRT has been through the backlash against it. And really, like... Whether it's critical race theory, or it's someone with an opposing theological system to us, or whatever, learning about something through the eyes of those who are against it is no way to understand something. Right. So, I'm going to ask the question again. Is critical race theory the boogeyman? Why do we have, or rather, why do some have such a big, such a big issue with it? And what it comes down to is this: justice at least in the sense of the gospel, comes through justification to God. So, um, it, it being justified, being being made righteous, um, having your penalty paid, making yourself right with God. But that doesn't look at the perspective of societal justice or really justice in the world that we're a part of world that we're a part of um, I mean yes we are kingdom citizens but we also live here and you know so the big question is some people see these as two kind of counter ideas to each other so if if the gospel is true justice right then we don't need social justice or this justice or that justice we just need gospel so I mean I've I've, I've held that line myself for a long time. But really, the top Andrew has got me thinking. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, critical race theories out there. But, but, but there's also this other thing out there, which is critical theory. Which does come from socialism. It comes from the idea... Uh, you know, redistributing uh, really dis- justice via redistribution. Robin Hoodism, so to speak. Taking from the haves to give to the have-nots. And so, because we combine in our brain this critical theory and this critical race theory stuff, uh, we just... We want to label it as Marxism. And then, of course, we do that because of the Cold War theology stuff that we talked about last week. So anything that is socialist or Marxist is obviously anti-Christian because we all know that God's preferred form of government is a democratic republic and God's preferred form of economics is capitalism even though capitalism is completely based on greed, but you know that's another conversation for another day. Um, we talked about all of this philosophy stuff, right? So critical theory is part of that stew, which I already mentioned. So what critical theory does is it looks for it looks for power structures and Um, all of those sorts of things. Anytime a truth statement or a truth claim is made, critical theory looks for the power structure behind that claim. Critical theory sees people in power controlling the narrative to maintain their power. And really, it's the entire basis of the critical mindset is to... Start revolution, um, and then we've got we've got we've got postmodernism that we're, that we're all part of, right? And so postmodernism really denies objective epistemology, or or rather epistemic objectivism. So we can't actually know anything for true. For for sure. We can't know that we know things. Everything is subjective. It's a matter of experience and opinion. um, Which really, you know, that's why you could lump relativism in with postmodernism. And we talked about all that. So, the gospel is an objective fact men are created in God's image whatever the Amado Dei is whether it's the fact that we are a trinity of body, mind, and spirit or if it is a label if image bearer is a role and it is our job to carry God's image into the world to bring dominion over creation There are many different theories on what the the being are. And um, I actually hit some of that before in Reconstructed Faith when I did my episode on what I believe. But um, regardless of that, so we are made from the dust. And then God breathed into us the breath of life. We have a soul. And we now bear his image. Whatever that may be. And We need to treat each other as equal imagers of God. Whether we are black, white, yellow, purple, green, male, female, whatever, we all bear God's image. I think we're flippant with that. I don't think that we give that enough weight when we discuss things like the death penalty, or, like, even abortion, you know, that's the—that's a hot topic right now. Anytime we end a life, we are removing part of God's image from the world. Like, that is a serious responsibility. But, not even in regards to murder and such... But in regards to the way that we treat people, and I think, I think if we can get the Amago Dei right, then we can get we can get race relations right. We can get um, the way we treat other believers, the way we treat non-believers, right. If we understand that we we all bear God's image. Now, is God's image something that is individual to each of us? It is, is it humanity as a collective? I don't know. In thinking about it, I know another big push against critical race theory is just the idea of race. Uh, you know, Paul wrote in Galatians that there's, you know, there's no Jew or Greek, or there's no Scythian, there's no slave free that we're all one body in Christ. But that is not to diminish our cultural differences or our identities. It's just that in Christ, we are all equal. We are all co-heirs to the throne, regardless of your station in life or your color or what have you. Um, you are equal parts of God's kingdom. But equality doesn't mean Homogenous. I saw I saw even this week ideas and thoughts from people, and I can't remember exactly what it said, but basically what it what it boiled down to is that their goal was just a homogenous. If if we're all one body in in Christ, and if If the truth is objective, there should be one homogenous expression of faith, and I think I think that completely misses the point. Because part part of the Imam Dei, at least in my view, and part of holiness, set apartness, isn't just being righteous. It's not living different or um, sinning less. We're all made different by God. And as as we walk in faith with God and He begins to redeem our character, we actually become more individualized. We do not become homogenous. We are all set apart in the way that we're all different from each other. And we should be celebrating our diversity, our unity through diversity. It is okay for us to call a black Christian a black Christian. That's what they are. They have a culture and a way of being, whether it is through their music or it is through just the passionate way that they experience the gospel. And that is okay. It is okay for there to be differences. When... when when we get when we get a glimpse of the kingdom in Revelation, we see every time we see every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I don't think that's gonna be homogenous. I think that we're all individually going to bring our cultures and our ways of being to heaven. And it is going to be a very diverse place. But we're going to have unity in diversity. We're going to have a respect and admiration for each other's differences. Wouldn't it be great if that was something that started now? If we can get a Mother Day right? And if the church can actually be the church, then we don't need... We don't need critical race theory. We don't need, you know, these other ideas if we actually love each other the way that we're supposed to. So I'm going to talk on that for a minute. That isn't really something I've hit a whole lot with Andrew yet, but it's a favorite topic point of mind. The world has completely redefined love, acceptance, tolerance, all these things. Types and terms. And because a lot of us aren't biblically grounded enough, we don't have a theology of love, or rather a theological framework for what love is, we've bought into the world's opinion. So loving me means accepting me as I am. It's a true point. But it means loving every aspect of me. There's no room for critique. Let's give an example. Right? So if I am trans or I am gay or whatever else, loving me means accepting that part of me. You know, because 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 that's who I am. And, you know, I love that part of me and whatever. And if you don't accept the things that I'm doing, you don't accept me. And if you don't accept me, you don't love me. So what has happened is we've gone soft. What has happened is the dichotomy I always talk about. So there's the one side that has doubled down on truth. And they are all about what they're against. And then... The rest of us have gone soft. You know, we don't we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. This and that things, and we have bought hook, line, and sinker. What love is? Because biblically, love is patient. Love is kind. We're going to talk, talk about kindness in a minute. Um, Love keeps up their record wrongs love delights in good and hates evil I mean that's straight out of the love chapter people straight out of first Corinthians 13 love delights in good and hates evil and so if we are to believe God about sin about the things that are sinful and we are to believe God about what love is, And part of what love is, is hating evil. It is hating the sin. And I know that's hard right now. We even have Christians, you know, trying to say, if your love doesn't look like love, it's not love. Because they have completely lost sight of what biblical love is. So if you haven't read it in a while, I recommend that you go read 1 Corinthians 13, about the character of self-sacrificial agape love, which is what we're called to, which does include hating evil. Can you hear me? Hating evil is love. So love is kind. Another thing that has happened is we have confused kindness for niceness. We think we just need to go around and be nice to people all the time. That's not what kindness is. Kindness is acting out of love for someone else. It is more than that. Kindness is acting out of the best interest of someone else. Kindness can actually look mean. It can be doing hard, even offensive things, if that's what's best for someone. An example, to any of you who are parents, is going to be punishing your child. Now, it's not very nice to make them stay in their room, or to take their electronics away, or you know, it's not nice to uh, you know spank them or whatever it would be. Those aren't nice things, but it is kind because you are teaching them that actions have consequences. You are you are you are creating those boundaries in an attempt to make them a decent human being, which is it's for the greater good of them and, it, and it's for the greater good of society. That we mold good humans. So while it isn't nice to punish your child, it is an act of kindness. Because you are doing what is good for them. In the same way, it may not be nice to call out your brother's sin. But it is kind to step in and say, hey, God desires this for you. This is where joy and peace is. This is where God's blessing is. But you're over here doing this whole thing. What's best for you is that you stop sinning. And That's not out of a place of judgment. That's out of a place of love and kindness. And, and, And we just we've gotten into this mindset where any kind of correction or pushback is judgment. And, you know, thou shalt not judge, right? Which we completely take out of context. It's about hypocrisy. It means that me, as someone who deals with pornography and all other kinds of sexually immoral thoughts, doesn't have the right to call out my brother on his porn addiction, or on cheating on his wife, or whatever, because we have the same category of sin. But if he's angry at his brother, or, you know, hateful towards his boss, or whatever, which is a struggle that I don't have, I can speak into that. See, it's it's all about hypocrisy. We are absolutely, at least within the body, called to keep each other accountable. Within the church. Now, there's no condemnation in Christ. That's in Romans. We shouldn't be condemning each other. But we absolutely need to keep each other out. And we need to call sin, sin. And call a spade a spade, if the case may be. To the unbeliever. Through relationship. Two. We should be looking to get to that point where we can lay down the law to bring that guilt and condemnation that leads to Christ, leads to repentance, right? Repentance is changing your mind about your sin. It doesn't mean you're going to go and sin no more right away, but it means you're going to agree with God that the things you're doing are sinful. You're going to say, yes, God, I have sinned. Um, and, and, and that's another thing we get wrong there's a lot of weird there's a lot of weird theologies around there uh, uh, around the word repentance I've gotten off track slightly but not I mean, all of this stuff is related it's all just part of the paradigm of wrong thinking that we're part of it's all the philosophy stuff the theory postmodernism, relativism standpoint epistemology. So, that's the idea that those who are marginalized have a louder voice. They are, you know, they are more able to speak to that thing. So, you know, me, me as a white evangelical male, um, I have the least amount of say. You know, I can do I can do all the research in the world I can give you the statistics and, and they and the objective facts but because I haven't experienced because it isn't my standpoint basically I have no right to speak about race or um, about reconciliation or about what a woman is or about abortion or about whatever because, I may know all the facts and all the science and whatever, but because I haven't experienced the thing, my opinion has no value. That's where the idea of my truth comes in. We really saw with the whole hashtag me too thing, believe women. So basically, regardless of what the facts of the events are. Regardless of witnesses, regardless of the objective truth of the matter, we are supposed to believe the subjective truth of the woman. So, that's standpoint of epistemology. That those who have experienced the thing, their words carry more weight. And the reason that's dangerous, and it is something for us to understand and something for us to unlearn is because it completely destroys the idea of finding the unbiased, objective, kind of unmitigated truth. So we have all of these charged, emotional, kind of, from my point of view, truths that we hold to in society. We're not allowed to call anyone out. To call someone out is hate. Things are a mess. I I think that's something we can all agree on. And all of that is outside the Cold War theology piece. Which is really... um, I know we did a quick overview last week, but if you really don't understand the idea of Cold War theology, in a nutshell, it is... Theology based on what we're against. We are always looking for the next devil, the next thing to demonize, the next thing to be against. Yeah. We can't just be for the gospel and for Jesus and for kingdom. We've got to be against the world. Which which I mean I agree with to a point. There's definitely attack language in the scriptures. But in that it's also very specific. We don't need to be finding the next big thing to fight against. So socialism was an socialism, at least the Soviet Union, was an atheist regime. So we had we had this idea that to fight to fight against communism was, you know, to fight for Christianity. And then the Soviet Union fell. Right? So then to fight against terrorism, right? To fight for freedom was to fight for Christianity. And now, well, because critical theory is socialist thought, we're back to fighting against socialism again. And there's always the next thing to fight against. And we are at war, we are at war with the principalities and powers of the air. Where We are at war with the kingdom of darkness. God's kingdom encroaching into the territory of the kingdom of darkness. And the gates of hell will not prevail, and we will overcome it. But it does not look like culture. It looks like spreading the gospel. You know, that's the whole idea of Satan being bound from, from actively deceiving the nations. You know, in the beginning, like, the Jews were the people of God. Right? It, it, and Christ came to the Jews, and it was only the Jews, it was the Israelites that had the truth, that had the gospel, and the the rest of the world was still turned over to the forces of darkness. We fight this battle by taking light, by taking the gospel out into the world who is no longer deceived by Satan. They're self-deceived. Many, many have been turned over into a depraved mind. As Roman one talks about, but that's a doing of their own flesh and an act of the Holy Spirit and not not Satan. Satan can no longer actively deceive the nations. I'm a granted, this is my view as someone who's a millennial, but we fight for the kingdom not by being against stuff, but by being for the gospel. And if we go and we love people and we just share the gospel in Christianizing the world, all the rest of this stuff will come as part of that. And we need to stop fighting over the world's political categories and philosophical categories. And you need to be people in God's kingdom who just happen to live here. So but we have all of this Christian nationalism stuff. You know, that goes back to the Puritans if you watched the last episode, if you paid attention at all. So they came over here to build a Christian society, to be a shining city on the hill, to have heaven on earth. It was a very kind of post-millennial, theonomy kind of idea which is something I'm going to do a whole episode here on in the next few months. Um, I'm going to have a guest come on and really talk about all that. And so but we have this idea of America as the Christian region. And really, it was, I mean, it's a lie. It's a lie that was done on purpose. Many of the founding fathers, as uh, hopefully you know, were not Christians at all. Many were, U- many were Unitarians, um, they were all Enlightenists, and really, they, hijack- they hijacked Christian language to get the Quakers, and to get the Puritan vote, to get them to sign the documents, while while built into the idea of all men being all men being created equal um, was also, you know, what we don't understand is that behind the scenes of that, of that language was the idea that natives and that slaves were one third a person. So Because they were only one-third a person, they only, they were only entailed a one-third of these equal rights. And that's, that's not revisionist history, that's, that's just truth. So, even though we had all of this Christian language in our founding documents, there was, um, between the lines was what they actually meant by those things. And Jefferson and Franklin and um, the founding fathers used Christian language, as I said before, to get the buy-in of the Puritans and the Quakers. So we've never actually had a Christian nation, not in a theonomist sense anyway, where it's under God. And uh, God's law is the law of the land. Our government is Christian or any of those sorts of things. We are not God's chosen nation neither is israel for that matter the israel that's over there is a political entity and it has nothing to do with the israel and the bible so we can stop with the always a friend to israel stuff that needs to go away god's chosen people is the church which consists of people from every tribe tongue, and nation unified under the gospel. We may not agree on spiritual gifts. We may not agree on the nature of baptism or the nature of the role of gender or, you know, those sorts of things, the egalitarian complementarian argument, but we do agree on the gospel. And our faith And our trust for our salvation is in Jesus Christ. If you look to Christ for your salvation, you are of God's chosen people. The church is the elect. The church are the people of God. So we need to get out of our minds. We need to get out of our minds this idea that there's a God's chosen nation. Because there's not. The kingdom of God is the church. Okay, and that's not America. I'm sorry, Christian nationalists, but when you get to heaven, it is not going to be the United States of heaven. It is not going to be the United States of heaven. Heaven will not be democratic, it will not be capitalist. And guess what? In heaven, we won't have guns. When we are so worried about our own individual personal rights, over the self sacrificial love of others, over, you know, the idea of more of God's image being taken out of this world by gun violence. Like, I'm not anti gun. There's a nuance somewhere, like there is with so many of these topics that we just suck at finding. You've always either got to be on this side or this side, and we even we even weaponize that idea. We call people like myself who are trying to find the nuanced middle ground, the nuanced truth. We call them compromised. Oh, well, well, you have to be on one side or the other. No, you don't! Because the truth is often in the middle. And we we need to stop being so tribal. You know, we need to pick truth over tribe. Okay? America is not God's chosen country. It never was and it never will be. Okay? The Republican Party is not God's chosen party. Does it... Does it, at least on paper, stand for some Christian ideals? Sure. But that doesn't mean that they're the same thing. Republicans don't stand for the gospel. They may stand for certain Christian ethical and moral ideas, but that is not the same thing. The Republican Party is not a Christian party. Okay? You can be a Christian, and you can follow your conscience. And that looks different for different people. Republicans are pro life. Yes, absolutely. But even though on paper Democrats are pro choice, we can look at the statistics and we can see that Democratic states with Democratic policies actually have less abortion because there's more programs and there's better health care so if you're are you going to vote for the outcome or for the ideal that's my question are you voting for the ideal or the actual outcome because you can look at the statistics and if you want to follow the objective facts of the outcome that you want which is less dead babies you're going to sacrifice your idealism and actually follow the facts and vote for what is proven to be the greater good. That's just one. That's just one example of how we get all tribalized and we pick our tribe over the truth. I'm not saying I'm a Democrat. You know, there's there's other stuff I disagree with, but that that is one. But that that issue is just one example of how to be nuanced and how to follow the truth and not you know to follow the actual truth and the facts and the statistics over the ideals we all just need to learn to think a little bit to do our own research and to actually follow the facts Not nationalism. Not tribalism. This is true within the truth. This is true within the church too. Within denominationalism and within our theological sects, we are often unwilling to call out a pastor or teacher from our tribe. Because they're from our tribe. Even if they're teaching something wrong. Because again... Even within the church, we're picking tri- we're picking tribe over truth, and it needs to stop. Can we all just be for the truth, even if it doesn't have a name or a tribe or whatever? Like, I get it. It's nice to belong and to have a label and to be an ideologue. you know that holds that holds the party lines. For that label. Because we want to be part of a thing. Be part of the truth. Not standing for the truth. Be your label. Even if that puts you at odds with your tribe. Follow the truth. Well, how do we do that then? If we're not going to follow, you know tribe, or the bylaws of our church, or our confession, or our whatever. Well, we're studying. Now, that doesn't mean that we study in a vacuum. We should absolutely consult the creeds and the confessions and the writings of everyone that has come before us, but we also need to be asking questions need to be asking the right questions. And that's, that's something I've learned. You know, the deeper into theology I get, you know, when, so biblical theology takes the Bible and really it puts it into categories, right? Um, This is about this and this is about that and this works together with this thing and this works together with that thing us understanding the overarching meta-narrative of scripture. And then what what systematic theology does is it then asks questions of those categories. And so we need to be careful that we that we are asking the same questions that the Bible actually answers. Or are we Are we coaxing answers out of the scriptures to questions, basically, what questions, what questions is the Bible asking, and how does that answer them? And are we asking the same questions that the Bible asks, or are we asking questions that the Bible doesn't answer? And I think often we get into that place. Where we are asking scientific questions about creation and the nature of the universe and you know many, many other things, we're asking questions of the text that the text doesn't answer. Because the Bible's not up because the Bible's not about those things. But because because we've been handed down a view of inerrancy that was crafted out of a response against falseness because we do that every creed that we've been handed every through history has come about out of fighting against a heresy right so, so the Nicene Creed exists to def- because of Arianism So there was was this guy, Arius, and he believed that Christ was created. He's, um, you know, out of the scripture where it says that Christ is the firstborn of creation, failing to realize that firstborn is a title. You know, Christ always has been. He's God. But anyway, so there was this idea of Christ as a created lesser divine than God the Father, you must also have to understand that the the Bible wasn't in everyone's hands. This this church had this set of letters, and this church had this set of letters, and the, the interpretation and understanding of this patristic had been handed down through this church, And this guy's interpretation had been handed down through this church. And so, the church would come together in these councils. With their different perspectives. And they would deliberate. Right? So, this Arianism was out there, right? About the nature of Christ, his divinity, whether he was created or eternal. And, um... When, when we finally got consensus that Christ is God, he's created, not eternal, or uh, that Christ is God, he's eternal, not created, we got, we got the Nicene Creed. Um, the, the Apostles' Creed before that was to combat Gnosticism, because we had all of these so-called Gnostic Christians um, within the church. And basically, you needed to be, um, it came about that you needed to be able to affirm the truths of the uh, Apostles' Creed to be baptized into the body. So, the the specific verbiage in the Apostles' Creed that combats Gnosticism are the idea are the parts that say, born of a virgin um, you know, crucified by Pontius Pilate because uh, Gnosticism was truly dualistic, right? The physical world was created by an evil god called the, De- called the Demiurge and our, our true nature is spirit and the flesh is evil and then, so there's no possible way that Jesus was born a man because the flesh is evil. There's no, way, there's no way that God could ever have flesh because it would corrupt his divinity. So that was some of the thinking behind Gnosticism. So we put, we put this language in the Apostles' Creed to basically flush out the Gnostics to try and get Gnosticism out of the church. Because a Gnostic could not affirm that Christ was born of a virgin, or that he was killed by Pontius Pilate. And uh, you know, that was also done to ground it in history. Because Pontius Pilate was an actual person. We had Roman records that confirmed Christ's crucifixion. And so, using that language, tied it into a, a historical time and place. Anyway, so, fast forward, right? We've always believed the Bible to be God's inspired word. inerrant, But that used to mean something a little bit different than what it means. Now, which is where I was going with all this in the 19th century really as as um as archaeology was really kicking into full force as a science as we were coming to understand babylonian culture and egyptian culture and um you know all of these other ancient near eastern mythologies and uh, we we began to see the common threads with the biblical narrative, out of that came a school of thought called higher criticism. Which is really the idea that the biblical narrative was borrowed. Not to say that it isn't true, although that is what that is what the fundamentalists accuse higher criticism of. But that 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 the human authors used existing paradigms of thought to frame their theology and that the, what the bible's actually about isn't the literal the literal historical narrative but that it is about it is about the moral ethical and theological through, truth that underpin the narrative that it is about it is about god's covenant to save his people it's about who God is, who man is, what the kingdom is, where we sit. Really, it is about the application than actually being literal than actually being literally true in a historical or scientific sense. And so, to combat to combat against this seemingly dangerous idea, the church came together. Double down and kind of recontextualize and redefine inerrancy um, to add language of inf to add language of infallibility. Granted, also most of this had come. This was in the nineteenth century, so you had a lot of dispensationalism, which is a, which uses a literal which uses a literal hermeneutic anyway. So really, these people just doubled down on what well, the Bible is literally true. You know, they they changed they changed the meaning, or really cut, redefined it, narrowed the view of really how you can believe the Bible and be orthodox. And so, because of that, to get back to what I was talking about before. Because of that narrowed... Because of that narrowed view of infallibility and inerrancy, now we ask questions of the Bible that the Bible does... Are questions that the Bible itself necessarily doesn't ask. So, about science. um, And about all sorts of other things. And coming to that realization was one of the uh, was one of the reasons I started Reconstructive Faith. Was to learn to read the Bible according to itself. To, to, To learn to recognize okay, what questions is the Bible answering? And so how do I ask the questions that the Bible asks instead of you know, asking the wrong questions. Because what's going to happen is we're going to have a malformed theology. We're going to have, we're going to be putting scripture into a context that it doesn't actually exist in by answering, by answering the wrong questions. And to me, questions of earthly political parties and all of those sorts of things Is one of those categories where we've just missed the mark and so i think it is possible to frame crt and frame all these philosophical systems that we're part of just by living in the time and place that we do i think it is possible to frame these things within a biblical ideology If we're not, if we're not stuck asking the wrong questions, these are all tools and ways of thinking that we have at our disposal to make connections with other people, to get into people's lives and to speak their language. We're, we're, we're to be all things to all people. And that means, to the best of our ability, under understanding all things, not a facsimile. I'm not. I'm not talking. I'm not talking about bad hokey Christian movies here, or a pastor deciding that since his youth group likes heavy music, he's going to start a metal band, and it's just terrible. Lots of bands in the '80s were started that way, and they were awful. I'm talking about actually. Assimilating into and, and being a part of people's paradigm. Honestly, understanding where they're at, where they come from. But yes, even if that means, even if that means studying other, even if it means studying philosophy, studying other people's ideas and what have you. If. You are firmly grounded in scripture. If you do what I always talk about, and you learn what you believe and why you believe it, you can then learn all of these other ideologies without compromising your own faith or your own thinking. And then you can walk alongside people as, as part of their culture from their paradigm, in their context, and you can bring the gospel into that. Long-term. Global missionaries do this. Often they'll be, let's see, there'll be a scouting party, I'll just call it that, I don't know the actual term, that goes first. And... Uh, you know learns about a culture and observes the culture and all of that and gathers information first before you even send the actual missionaries or this is it, this is how it should be done it's has been done in the past but now you know the modern church has terrible missiology which is another thing to talk about but you go and you study the culture and then when you do go you go to assimilate in, to live as they live, to be a part of their culture, and then, then you can spread the gospel, you can Christianize from within, rather than like attacking their culture and their way of life, and saying, hey, you need to be Christian, you need to be like me, we assimilate into their culture, and we add Christ. We need to stop attacking everything that doesn't look like us the kingdom of god i think is meant to be diverse and it is meant to be united through its differences i'm sorry but i don't want a white evangelical christian heaven that will be a boring eternity love people you know that is that is always what it comes down to. And and you know, it's interesting that this this whole idea of love God, love your neighbor was really what started my deconstruction. Because, you know, I had a very biblically based Well, and and that's not to say love God, love your neighbor isn't Bible-based. It's absolutely Bible-based. But by that, I mean more of a, you know, more of a fundamental legalist framework that I came from. Um, And I was very much against the softies that just wanted to love everybody. And yet here I am telling you guys better ways we can love people. And I just think it's interesting where God has brought me on this journey. But we need both. We need both. You know, I was in my worship team, our worship leader, we've been doing discipleship and small groups as part of our worship team, which I'm super thankful for. And he asked a really loaded question a few weeks back. And um, I think the way the, the group as a whole took it, it is really telling of why it's important that we fight against the idea of just love God and love your neighbor. He said, what are the requirements for Christianity? And, uh, you know, I talked about orthodoxy. I talked about white belief, you know, trust in Christ. Dependency on God for all things, and then one of the elders in our church who is on our tech team said, I think we're overthinking this, guys. We just need to love God and love your neighbor. No. What does that look like actually fleshed out? Are we loving God the way that the Bible lays out for us to love God? Are we loving our neighbor the way the Bible flushes out for us to love our neighbor? It is important to take this idea of love to the scriptures and examine what love is biblically. and then go love that way. A deep theology and I'm not talking about that in your head. you know I lived I lived for years believing all the right things in my brain that might save me that might help me understand god but what benefit is that to the world if our if our salvation was for us don't you think that god would save us and then just take us home but instead he has us live out this thing called the christian life he has us go out into the world and be the kingdom For for the sake of the world. So, do you have a theology that makes you... I'm not not even talking about personal sin here. We're, We're talking about being a good human or a better person or whatever. But, as a whole... In your neighborhood, in your greater community, in your state, in your country, are you doing what's beneficial? Or are you being divisive and combative? Yes, the Bible absolutely tells us to destroy false arguments and to contend for the truth. You know, to fight, to fight strenuously as if to win. It is what the word contend there in Jude means in the Greek. I absolutely agree with that. But, Paul, the same guy who tells us to destroy false arguments, tells us that if we do these things without love, it's just noise. So I want you to ask yourself, are you hurting or are you helping? I know for a long time, I was on the hurting side of that paradigm. And I pray, I pray that I have finally crossed that line over to helping. And that I'm saying enough of the right things that all of you who are listening are also going to now move, you're going to cross that line from hurting to helping. So I think, you know on my journey through Reconstructed Faith, through, you know, trying to read the Bible according to itself, and then really trying to do some apologetics to frame just our existence, our reality within a Biblical framework, which I'll get back to eventually when I have time. Um, and then these conversations that I've had with Andrew, and then Joe, when I've been on his show, and just some of the stuff I'm learning in my personal life and some of the discipleship that I've gone through. I think this talk, this introspective, retrospective, like it is good to assess what you're learning, where you're at, and really to ask yourself, well, I've learned these things, but am I living those out, or are those just ideas in my brain? And in my prayer for myself, and, and for anyone who's listening, Is that we wouldn't just learn things for the sake of knowledge. But that we would let our knowledge of God, our study of God, our theology, transform transform our mind and our hearts and our lives. That we would be the kingdom. Yeah? And that's what this is all about. And you know, I I used to think that kingdoms, that kingdom talk was soft. That it was a cop-out. That we need to be out preaching the gospel, not giving people's blankets and food. Because you, you know, you may fill their belly and give them a warm night's sleep, but if they die without the gospel, so help them, they're going to hell. And I just... I don't know how I feel about that anymore. Because God is working. He's softening up, you know, this scarred, this scarred up, scabbed up for person. And I I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to look like when it's done. I'm probably going to look like someone that me from two years ago would call a hair tick. Would call soft. And maybe I have gone soft, but maybe that's because there's truth in the softness. Yes, Jesus viciously called out the Pharisees. <clears throat> yes, he flipped over tables. But this is the same Jesus that broke cultural. And racial stigmas with the woman at the well. When he changed the parable, you know, of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus doing that shows us that he saw race. You know, he didn't ignore the cultural divide that existed between races. He called the Samaritans Samaritan. murder. But I mean, he, he called the woman a dog. Which, he, as a Jew, he believed he had every right to do. So, again, back to some of the original points of this video. And I know I'm rambling. It is okay for us to acknowledge cultural differences, it is okay. For us to acknowledge that we have hurt whole cultures of people. We have failed to see them as the Imago Dei. Do I believe that means reparations and redistributive justice? No, I don't think that those are biblical ideas. But we do need to understand the scar... Of those actions those have left on 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 the cultures of those that committed these oppressive acts and also the cultural scars that have been left on the victims. And that's a biblical idea, I think. You know, we see in the Bible both 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 blessings and curses that are generational to your family and their children and their children for a hundred generations. Or we see curses, we see curses that go seven generations. Um, You know, seven, of course, being a number of completeness. So that is a, you know, that is an eternal forever curse, even though none of us are personally guilty for these atrocities. I think that we are living out the generational curses of these actions. And that's all I'm going to say on it. You can call me woke or compromised or whatever. But we just need to go love me. As usual, you can find Commuter Christian and Reconstructed Faith at ReconstructedFaithPodcast.com There's a reconstructed faith youtube channel where both shows are posted um reconstructed faith has a facebook group it is on anchor if you would like to support the show there's a patreon as well please support the show so i don't have to do this in my car anymore have a good day everybody